First Chronicles 12, verse 22. For from day to day men came to David, that's King David, to help him until there was a great army, like an army of God. These are the numbers of the divisions of the armed troops who came to David in Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul over to David, according to the word of the Lord. Now, we're going to go through some tribes and some numbers, so stick with me. Ratchet up your courage, stir up your faith. Here we go. <laughs> the men of Judah bearing shield and spear were 6,800 armed troops. Of the Simeonites, mighty men of valor for war, 7,100. Of the Levites, 4,600. The prince Jehoiada of the house of Aaron, and with him, 3,700. Zadok, a young man, mighty in valor, and 22 commanders from his own father's house. Of the Benjamites, the kinsmen of Saul, 3,000, of whom the majority had to that point kept their allegiance to the house of Saul. Of the Ephraimites, 20,800 mighty men of valor, famous in their father's houses. Of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000, who were expressly named to come and make David king. Of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. Of Zebulun, 50,000 seasoned troops equipped for battle with all the weapons of war to help David with singleness of purpose. Of Naphtali, 1,000 commanders with whom there were 37,000 men armed with shield and spear. Of the Danites, 28,600 men equipped for battle. Of Asher, 40,000 seasoned troops ready for battle. Of the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, from beyond the Jordan, 120,000 men armed with all the weapons of war. All these men of war, arrayed in battle order, came to Hebron with a whole heart to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel were of a single mind to make David king. And there were they, or they were there with David for three days, eating and drinking, for the brothers had made preparation for them, and also their relatives from as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali. They came bringing food on donkeys and on camels and on mules and on oxen. Say food truck. There you go. Abundant provisions of flour, cakes of figs, clusters of raisins, and wine and oil, oxen and sheep, for there was joy in Israel. I did not bring you out today to give you a history lesson uh, centered on ancient Israel. That's not my main purpose. I love the history of Israel, both past and future. Uh, Israel has a story yet to be told. That's not my focus today either. The reality is, is that we can learn much. The things that were written before time, before time, uh, were written for our learning, for our edification, for our understanding. So there is some New Testament application to this beautiful Old Testament passage. And the whole consensus is this. Israel had been a divided people. They had at once, at their inception, been a people who had Yahweh as their king. God was their king. All of the pagan nations had human kings. When Israel moved into the land and settled into the land, they began to look at the other pagan nations who had human kings. They began to declare as one, we would like a human king. Samuel was their judge and leader. They said, Samuel, 
you're old, we don't love your sons, they're wicked men, we want a human king, get us a king. Samuel was grieved because he knew that it was a rejection not only of his leadership, but primarily of God's leadership. So he went before the Lord, and the Lord said, Samuel, give them what they want. They really haven't rejected you. They've rejected me. Go ahead and give Israel what they want. So their desire for a human king started out in a fleshly desire to be like the pagan nations around them. And so when they chose that human king, he was impressive. He was good looking, he was tall, he was big, he was bold. His name was Saul. And everybody looked at him and said, now that's a king. The problem is, is they were looking on the outward appearance. God was looking at Saul's heart. And in a very short time after he became the king, Saul revealed that he was an insecure man, a fleshly man, a fearful man, a paranoid man. He became a sociopathic man and died in a season where he was demonized and suicidal. That's the king they picked. That sometimes happens when God gives us what we demand. And that's what Israel demanded, and that's what happened. So when Saul died, he had a son who was in line to take the throne. The son's name was Ishbosheth. But David had already been anointed king, but Israel hadn't recognized him fully. When Ishbosheth was murdered, David was the only man remaining. And for the first time in Israel's history, they had God's choice as a human king. David was now the king, and what the passage we just read entails is all of the different tribes of Israel coming in military format to say, we pledge our military allegiance to you, O David, our king. It is a picture, I believe, of many things, but the application today is going to be not so much with ancient Israel and all these people, but the application is going to be on you and on me. And the question is this, not are you saved? I'm not asking if you've bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not asking you today primarily, have you believed that his death on the cross atoned for your sins? I'm not asking you if you've believed that he rose from the dead on the third day, securing eternal life for all of those who believe in him. I hope that that's the case. And if it's not the case with you, you may receive him today. If you want to, you can be saved. If you want to, you will be saved because he wants to save you. But that's not really what I want to focus on today. My focus is for all of us who have been saved. I'm not asking today, are you saved? I'm asking, are you soldiering? I'm asking you. Are you in your place in the army of God? Because from these different tribes, I don't know that I'll get to all of them today, but I'm going to highlight some of them. And the beauty of the body of Christ is that we all come from different tribes. My tribe started out as Irishmen, and they migrated over here. I look Irish. When you look at me, this is on the outward appearance. He's a short middle-aged, a little round in the middle white guy. That is the tribe I put him in. But I want you to know, that's my tribe in the natural. My tribe in the spiritual is I am part of a different citizenship. I am a child of God, and I have a tribe with all the other children of God. Your tribe may be African descent. It might be Hispanic descent. It could be anywhere. We look on the natural. And, and then we have, okay, well, I'm of the male tribe. I'm of the female tribe. And they're trying to introduce new tribes, but those are the only two gender tribes that we have. But we split those now. And we say, well, it's all about the men. It's all about the women. And then we've got generational tribes. We've got the Gen Xers. That's my tribe in the natural. We've got the boomers. That's the older. That's my parents' generation. Actually, my dad's the, the greatest generation, the World War II tribe, and then the uh, baby boomers, then the Gen Xers, then the millennials, and Gen Y, and so on. So we've got generational tribes. 
And so everywhere we turn in our culture and our lives, somebody's trying to squeeze you into a tribe and say, stay there. But what I see in this is I see the 12 tribes of Israel plus the two halves of the Manasseh tribe and then you've got the Joseph's boys that are in there. You got Ephraim and Manasseh. And so you really have 14 different groups that are pictured here. And this is what I want you to know. The Lord does not call you to refuse to acknowledge the tribe from which you came. He calls you to take that tribal identity and submit it to your kingdom citizenship. Because after all, our tribes may be different, but our king's the same. They had one king for the first time in a long time, and it was a God-appointed king. We have one king. His name is not David. He is the son of David. He is Jesus Christ, the Lord. And he is the king, and he has assembled an army. When you got saved, you got enlisted. Hallelujah. But we're acting like we're in peacetime, and we're acting, if I can risk this word, we're acting like it's playtime. And I believe the church has grown a little dim and a little dull on the reality that it's still wartime. And so from these tribes and what we can learn from them in the next half hour, um, I'm going to make application to all of our lives and let's see what the Holy Spirit does. Let's go back up into verse 24. Judah is the first tribe. Very simply, there's only one line attributed to them in this passage. Judah is that tribe that is named for praise. Judah means praise. And these were those that were simply stated to be equipped for warfare. What does it say? The men of Judah came to David and they were bearing shield and spear. 6,800 armed troops. So I want you to remember this actually happened. From the tribe of Judah and ancient Israel, 6,800 men bearing shields and spears or swords. Some translation says swords. Regardless, they had a defensive weapon, the shield, and an offensive weapon here in the ESV called the spear. And their weaponry even speaks of what they expected in their allegiance to David. They were going to have to use that, that shield to fight off what was wrong, to defend against what was wrong that was coming against Israel. They were going to have to use that spear to go out and to destroy what is wrong, to defend, let's say it this way, the shield defended what is right, the spear destroyed what is wrong. Now, friends, I I just want to say this. I'm not advocating violence or a militant Christianity in the sense of going out and waging war in our culture. Please don't misunderstand me. I would never advocate that. But I'm saying in the spirit, we need both. It's my observation that the church has for a long time been in a defensive posture in our culture. We have have abdicated our position over the last 50 to 60 years in America. The church has abdicated the position and expected the government to establish biblical morality and biblical righteousness. Uh, Open up your news feed and find out how that's going for us as a nation. The reality is, is we've been in a defensive posture. We've been begging the culture to love us, to like us, to affirm us, to applaud us, to please let us be who we want to be. And what's happened is instead of taking ground and instead of advancing the kingdom, both through our witness and through our ways and our works, what we've done is we've become irrelevant in the culture. To the extent now when the culture is hostile against the people of God, we, they, they literally don't feel like there's anything wrong with being that way. What happened? Uh, The church walked around with a shield for a long time and they forgot to take ground using the spear of the word of God and the witness and the advance of the gospel and the training up of the generations. 
and we became slaves to other things and we abdicated the authority that God entrusted with us. When Judah came to David, they had weaponry, but they also had willingness. It says they were armed troops. In other words, they weren't just walking around with a shield and a spear because that's what believers did back then. They were walking around because they expected and anticipated a battle. Can I be, can, I'm gonna preach to big boys and big girls this morning, amen. I'm an equal opportunity offender, and if you get offended, that's okay. I forgive you for being offended. We no longer expect the battle. We no longer expect to be resisted, opposed, defamed, mocked, persecuted. We no longer expect, we believe that there's an entitlement on the church and we are in this in-between stage from what used to be and what's gonna be and we're caught looking around for leadership. Somebody tell us what we ought to do. Well, we'll get to that tribe in a moment. The reality is we're in a battle. There's a battle for our children. There's a battle for our grandchildren. There's a battle for us. There's a generational battle. It is not flesh and blood that we primarily wage war against or wages war against us. It is the spiritual forces of wickedness that have on their puppet strings all of our entertainment, all of our media, all of our culture, all of our government, all of our values, all of the industries. And they got those on the puppet strings. And the church is just standing by watching the puppet show. Judah, when they stepped into King David, they were ready to battle, and we have to be too. Second tribe, Simeon. I call these with those who had heightened courage. It says of the Simeonites, they were mighty men of valor for war, 7,100 of them. Nothing is said of their training. Nothing is mentioned of Simeon's, the, these 7,100 soldiers' weaponry. The only thing that's noted there is that they... They had potential that was connected to their courage. I love that. It, it speaks of the ability of their hands. They were mighty men. We're given nothing else. It just spoke that these, these men, these soldiers, at least had competency and potential. It means they had the ability. And what made their ability worthwhile is it was paired with something. What was it? The ability of their hands was paired with the nobility of their hearts. It said they were men of valor. And they were not just generally speaking men of valor. In other words, they weren't just strutting around flexing. They were men of valor, men of courage for the purpose of war. In other words, they understood and expected there would be conflicts with the surrounding areas. You got to remember in ancient Israel, David had the most bloodshed in war of any king that reigned in ancient Israel. So when they're coming to battle, they know that their, their king is also a, a, an extremely competent military man. He, they understood that they were going to be fighting all of the ites that were in the land and there would be extreme bloodshed. And these men had something that I believe we need a baptism of in the church today for men and women. What is it? It's courage. Courage for the war. Brothers and sisters, think about this. Just let's examine our own hearts. I feel like generationally we're seeing it. I don't know so much about the generation that's coming up behind my generation, but my generation and older, the temptation for us is to lose our courage and then when we lose our courage, we lose our purpose, we lose our mission, we, we lose our drive. We become, we become nuanced by ambiguity and, and we just kind of float in and out of life and our purpose becomes this, our purpose becomes the American dream. It means, okay, all right, my purpose in life as an American is to be born, to get educated, 
to eventually get married, to have a home with my wife and my two and a half kids, and then I'm going to hopefully make a lot of money. I'm going to work myself as much as possible, save as much as I can in the last 15 to 20 years of my life. I'm going to exhale. And that's the default purpose of the church. It's American, but the church has been sipping off that keg for a long time. And, and so what has happened? There's no courage required for that. There's no courage for that. There's skill. There's planning. There, 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 there's got to be some success avenues in that thing. It doesn't take a lot of courage for that. Say, so, well, we're denying ourselves. That takes courage. You're denying, all you're doing is deferring your reward so you can eat it all in the last 20 years of your life. That's not courage. It's just planning. I'm not even saying it's terrible, but I am saying this. If that's your purpose and your plan, it's terrible. Why? Because you're made for more. You are made for more. You were born for more in the natural world, but you were definitely born again for something more of that. And yet, these guys, when they showed up, it doesn't say that they have any skills. It doesn't say they brought any weapons, but they brought their, they brought their hearts beating in their chest for David. I, I love that because maybe... Maybe you don't know what your weaponry is yet. Maybe you don't know what qualifies as your shield or your spear or sword. But maybe you also know that, I don't, I don't know what my gifts are. I don't know what my skills are. I don't know how I'm being equipped. I don't know the specifics yet. But I do know one thing. My heart beats for Jesus. And this world cannot satisfy me. And Jesus, I've got more zeal than I do opportunity right now. And I feel like, Lord, I'm kind of living in this box. But if you'll let me out of this box, Lord, I promise you, if you'll keep me holy and I follow you, and, and Lord, if you will fill me with your spirit, then Lord, I promise you my life will mean something when I stand before you at the end of it. Simeon just kind of showed up with a whole bunch of courage and the Holy Spirit told the chronicler, yeah, write that down. Let all the generations know that the tribe of Simeon sent 7,100 men and they showed up with courageous hearts. You don't have to be uber gifted, friend. You don't have to be flowing in 14 different simultaneously working spiritual gifts. You don't have to leave little puddles of anointing wherever you go. But you do have to be faithful. And faithfulness is always fueled by courage for the next step. Let's go to the next tribe. Levi, the priestly tribe. I call these, in particular, one that we're going to talk about. Levi represents those of consecration and convictions. It says of the Levites there were 4,600. It mentions Jehoiada. He's the, the chief or the leader. It says prince here in the ESV. He's from the Aaronic line, the house of Aaron. And he brought 3,700 soldiers with him. But I love verse 28. Young people, listen to this. There's this guy named Zadok. I like that name, by the way. If you're going to have a baby next year, just think about it. Zadok. Zadok, a young man, mighty in valor and 22 commanders from his own father's house. Why does that speak to me? Well, you've got the Levites just broken down in two descriptions here. You've got Jehoiada, and he's kind of a big deal. His name would have been known. He's referred to here as a prince. It just basically in a general sense means he was a leader. And he's got 3,700, 3,700 guys with him. 
So you picture that. They're marching up to the place where David is establishing, and all these people from tribes are coming, and the trumpets blow, and here comes the tribe of Levi. Jehoiada's at the front, 3,700 faithful, godly men coming from that priestly tribe, pledging their allegiance to King David. And then right behind Jehoiada and his 3,700, you got a 19-year-old named Zadok, and he's feeling it, man. The Bible says he's a mighty man of valor. That means he's got the contents, he's got the substance, he's got the courage, but he's got no resume. He's unimpressive. He's got 22 dudes with him. Jehoiada's got 3,700. Zadok feels like he's got 3,700. He's just got 22 guys with him, and they're all from his own family. That's what it says. But this is so good. Young people, hear me on this, and if you're not so young anymore, hear this on their behalf. Your zeal is essential to the kingdom of God. We, as we get older, we have a tendency to lose our zeal. Christians' hearts tend to get diluted over the years. And what starts out as a a 20-year-old with a ton of zeal, by the time he's 40 and he's got a mortgage and he's got a family and he's got responsibilities or she's got three babies and no husband anymore and life happens, zeal tends to be something of a, a luxury because real life happens. And so the church often, as it ages, loses its zeal. That's why older churches die out sometimes. I know of a church right now that literally is down to less than a dozen people. And in that same city, less than a mile away, there's a thriving church, gospel-centered, gospel-focused church that has a ton of young people doing a lot of outreach to marginalized people, have very little money, but a lot of work, and, and they just want to know, can they partner with these 12 older people? And that church is saying, no, this is our church. And I'm thinking to myself, they missed it when they were young. They didn't feel that way probably. But that zeal and that vision and that purpose teens to wax. And so young people, listen to me. We need your zeal. We need your eagerness. We need your feet going to the nations, but if not to the nations, then across the street and in the schools and on the ball fields and in the libraries and on college campuses. Your zeal is important. What we need to do as older people is help add a little wisdom to that zeal for them. That's the only thing. Sometimes young people are so zealous They think wisdom will just slow them down, therefore it's unnecessary. But it's an awesome thing when you get a Zadok who steps up, who's got, make make, make Zadok a woman for a minute, a a young 20-something-year-old woman. No, No spouse, no kids, but a heart for the king, a heart for the kingdom, a heart for for the nations. And, And Zadok wasn't impressive. You know, Zadok's a young dude. He's got 22 people with him that he recruited from his own family. On paper, he doesn't compare to Jehoiada. But what did the Holy Spirit do? The Holy Spirit memorialized this Zadok forever in the Word of God and said he's a young guy with a lot of zeal. He's got 22 people. So if you're leading a home group and seven showed up, hallelujah, that's seven more than you deserve. If, if, if you're a young person and you're trying to toilet the college campus and it's been a year and you've only found one other Christian, hallelujah, I can't believe God connected you with a brother or a sister in Christ on that campus. Now, two of you together, go do something. And to my generation and older, I want to say this. We, we owe a debt of love to the younger. Um, I, I don't know how you felt about all the dancing and all the hopping and all of that this morning. I loved it. I loved it, not because I can do it, 
Y'all see me try. The best I do is kind of limp through a twirl and then I have to sit down for three minutes. It's not pretty. But when I see, and some of them weren't young. We, we had some silver hairs up here dancing too, but the point is this. The generational hostage taking of the church where the young say we don't want any of the influence of the older. And the older say, oh, we don't want that kind of compromised, nuanced, worldly kind of stuff that the younger celebrate. Let me tell you who's not in the middle of either of those conversations, the king. Because the king wants both. And we're not in competition with each other. Zadok and Jehoiada are not, you know, coming to fisticuffs over who's in the front of the line. The reality is, is they were fixated with King David, and that's all they were thinking about. And when we're fixated on King Jesus, let the young dance, let the older do all the things that they are equipped to do. And listen, if you're a wise young person, not just zealous, but wise, if you're a wise young person, you will want to hang around with those that are older than you. You'll want to glean from their experiences. You'll want to benefit because when you add wisdom and experience to zeal, you have a mighty force to be reckoned with. So we get down a little bit further and we get to Benjamin. Here's an encouraging word. I call Benjamin those who were reluctant. Uh, the Benjamites were Saul's people, the former, former king. And they used to be connected to the king's palace. But Saul's dead. Ishbosheth, his son, is dead. And it says, of the Benjamites, the kinsmen of Saul, 3,000 of whom the majority had to that point kept their allegiance to the house of Saul. See, this thing didn't happen overnight. Everybody knew that there was a slow migration of faithfulness towards David. David had been receiving soldiers and loyal servants for a while, but Saul's house was not ready to give in yet. They still liked being connected. They still liked the fact that Saul was their man, and now his son, Ishbosheth, is on the throne. So we're just going to stick with our tribe for a little bit. And then when Ishbosheth was murdered, they came reluctantly. Now, let's just think, because there's two directions we can go with this. A carnal king looks at him and says, Oh, so y'all think y'all are going to come to me now? Where were you when I was fighting the Philistines and needed your help? Where were you when Saul, the former king, was hunting me down? Where were you in my days of running and wandering? Where were you when my name as the king was made a byword among your tribe? Where were you then? And you think you're going to come to me now? Now, David could have done that, and nobody in his day would have probably thought much of it because it would be normal. Oftentimes, when a new king arose to power, he'd kill everybody in the former king's family. Uh, David didn't. It's as if, although the, the dialogue's not recorded, but the chronicle puts down that these 3,000 Benjamites came and became a part of David's army. I could see it like this. David, being the man after God's own heart, sees Saul's soldiers his family, his kinsmen coming. And he says to them, welcome. I'm honored to have you fight among the other tribes as part of my army. Welcome, thank you for your loyalty. See, my friends, there are some in the room today and some that'll listen through our media streams. And you're coming into this kingdom awareness a little late in life. Maybe you've burned a lot of years. Maybe you live for your flesh or you live for the world or you live maybe even in extremes for the devil. I know I did from age 14 to age 24. I wasn't just indifferent to God. I was hostile towards God. 
And I remember coming to Jesus at age 24 and thinking, man, I sure have come late in life. You know, that's, that was, I was 24. And I, I really felt like I had wasted all those years, but now I can see that I had a lot of years ahead of me and hopefully still do. The reality is that some people don't get saved and come to Christ until they're 40 or 50 or 60 or 70. And you can either look at your past and mourn for what you should have done, or you can put your entire past under the blood of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, he'll look you in the eye and he'll say, what about today? What, what do you want to do tomorrow with me? Uh, Benjamites came late, but they came. Just a very simple word. If you've been straddling the fence, either in salvation or becoming a soldier, it's not too late. The Lord's not here to shame anybody today. Maybe you have given yourself to the American dream and you're finding out it's not all that dreamy. And, and, and the Lord is not chastising you and shaming you, but he is calling you unto something more. And I just want to say, it's not too late to invest your life in what the king is doing, your time in what the king is doing, your relationships in what the king is doing, your money in what the king is doing. It's not too late. Just because you haven't turned the corner up to this point doesn't mean you can't turn it now. And that's proven by the Benjamites who came to the lesser king. They came to King David. We're coming to King Jesus, the greater king. I'm going to skip down to Manasseh. Y'all still with me? I'm watching the clock. I know you are too, but I'm watching it. If you, if you got to go, you got to go. That's the rule around here. You can leave whenever you want, and I'll quit when I'm done. Manasseh is going to encourage somebody. These are those who are precisely chosen and called. All it says is of the half-tribe of Manasseh, because Manasseh split in half. Some lived on one side of the Jordan River, some lived on the other. But of the half-tribe of Manasseh, on the west side of the Jordan, there were 18,000 who were expressly named. There's the phrase. They were expressly named to come and make David king. I, I don't want to overstate this, but I, I don't want to be vague about it. I believe that God calls people. I believe that there are calls unto salvation. I, I believe it can look a thousand different ways, but I don't think anybody gets saved because they just woke up one day and decided, I think I'll turn my life over to Jesus. I think there was a lot of calling from the Holy Spirit that was going on prior to that, whether they were aware of it or not. And in the moment of salvation, you're answering a call to come to Jesus. Again, it can look a hundred different ways. It could be something supernatural. It could be something that's just all of a sudden it crystallizes in your heart and mind and you know that Jesus is Lord and you bow to him. I, I don't want to make a, a, um, a template out of how it might happen. But I do believe that God calls people. And I do not believe he's obligated to keep calling people. I believe that's why there's an urgency of the gospel. When we present the gospel, we don't say, hey, if not today, then maybe some other day. Because the fact of the matter is, is A, you don't know if you have another day, but B, if you have another day, you don't know that he'll call you again. Jesus said that nobody comes unto the Father except through him, and unless nobody comes unto Jesus except the Spirit draws them. And so we don't get to play around and tell God, hey, you'll do it on my timetable, I'll come when I'm ready. That's not the way it works. But beyond salvation, I actually believe there's also calls to mission and purpose. Um, I, I'll never forget mine, December 14th, 1994. It was a boring Wednesday night, most boring. I love them. I thank God for them because God used them in my life. Most boring preacher presenting. I mean, 
he was as dry and dusty as it could get. It was a Wednesday night. I'm on the back row of Meadow Baptist Church. And I don't even know what the dude was talking about except getting literature to the nations. And I, I was somewhere between trying to be polite and falling asleep. It was that bad. And then all of a sudden, in the last two minutes of, of the message, I hear the Holy Spirit. Didn't even know what to call it back then. I hear the Holy Spirit speaking in my internal hearing. You're going to preach the gospel. You're going to preach the gospel. You're going to preach the gospel. That was a calling from God. I didn't know what to do with it, and so God wanted to string me out a little bit. And the, the dry missionary stepped down. My pastor stood up. My pastor just stood there, and he never did this on a Wednesday night. He said, we're going to give an invitation tonight. I believe God's calling somebody to ministry tonight. I'm squeezing the back of the wooden pew. Literally, if that pew still existed, my fingernail marks are in that thing. I held on to it, and I hear the Holy Spirit saying, you're going to preach the gospel, you're going to preach the gospel. You're going. And I started weeping, and finally, my pastor dismissed the service. I literally turned to run out, and an elderly man named Roy stopped me, put a hand in my chest. He said, son, I believe you're going to be the next preacher around here. I thought, Jesus, get me out of here, please. Sometimes God makes it obvious Sometimes it's not as obvious, but I want, to know, I want to say this about Manasseh. For them being soldiers, somebody expressly named 18,000 of them and said, go represent us to the king. They had a calling without clarity. It just says they were going to make David king. It doesn't say any weapons they took. It doesn't say any skills they had. It doesn't even, excuse me, mention their courage. It just said they were commissioned, they were called, they were sent. And so they had to do something that a lot of people struggle to do. What is it? It's to surrender without the specifics. We, we're all for calling. God, if you don't mind, my attorney is here with me today. And if you'll just put on paper everything you're expecting me, we'll dialogue a little bit. We'll get, my people will get back to your people, and then we'll let you know if I'm... See, the king's invitation is not to be answered, it's to be obeyed. And some of you, I'm just going to be bold. Some of you are called. You are straight up called. And the enemy has bombarded you with every reason why it can't happen. Every reason why it shouldn't happen. Every reason why it's never going to happen. For Manasseh, they had to uproot, do whatever they had to do. They were expressly named. They knew one thing, that they were being sent to in, in surrender without specifics and in a calling without clarity. And they went to David where he was and they said, here we are, all we want to do is make you, a, uh, make you the king. So to establish his kingdom. Can I encourage some of you in this day where there's going to be great shifts that are going to be happening. Our culture is going to undergo extreme changes. If you read the back of your Bible, you need to understand. I know we have a lot of different views on eschatology around here, but I'm, I, I think we can all agree on this. Things will not continue as they are. And there's going to be a dramatic, dramatic shift. And there's going to be lots and lots and lots and lots of voices going global with the message of the kingdom and its king. And some of them are in here. And I will tell you this, there is no fear that is worth you saying no to that call. You say, I need more information. Sometimes it doesn't come until you say yes. We are addicted to the details, aren't we? And God reserves the right not to go full disclosure with you. If he had told me what I was going to do and what I was going to go through, 
and what I was going to endure, if he had told me that on December 14th, 1994, I would have ducked and run. I promise you, because it's been hard at times. We're in a great season now. Don't, don't send me flowers. We're in a great season now. But I'm going to tell you, it's been extreme. And everybody that's ever done a, a lengthy ministry knows that at times it, 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 it's, it's a cross you carry. You, you get crucified. You've got to die daily. But I'm so glad I said yes. And I'm going to tell you this. I, I, I don't even know what tomorrow is going to bring. But he's still worthy of our yes. Manasseh represents that. Five minutes and I'm going to be done. Let me give you Issachar briefly because it's my favorite verse. These are the discerning ones. I've spoke to the, old, the younger earlier. I'm going to speak to primarily the older here. It doesn't exclusively older, but primarily. Of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. There were 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. It's the smallest number outside of Zadok's 22. There were only 200 of them. They're called chiefs. They were established leaders in the tribes of Issachar. They were not known, in this passage at least, for their, their battle skills, their military might. They're, they're not even, we can assume it, but they're not even described as being men of valor or courage. They are noted here because they have what I will call prophetic understanding of what God was doing in their generation. They were able to grasp the big picture, not because they were educated, not because they were sophisticated. It was because they had experienced revelation from the Lord and they were able to understand what was going on in the context of Saul and Ishbosheth being brought down and David being exalted. And the anointing of understanding was on them. Hear me on this. In the battle that we are in as the church, it can't always be the tambourine and the dance. I love the tambourine and the dance. I love the worship. I, I, I love the, the times of fellowship and fun. I even love mission and advancing the gospel, neighborhoods, nations. I love all of that. I love night and day prayer and the fact that for 13 plus years, the room has been open, the worship has been going, the flame has remained lit unto the Lord. I love all of that. But listen, we must have people that in the midst of all of that, hear the Lord and know what to do. It can't always be what's the flow of the moment saying. Sometimes there has to be a gathering of the minds, a submitting of the hearts, an awakening of the spirit, an opening of the ear, a brightening of the eyes, an enlargement of the mind. And we have to say, God has spoken. Here is what he's doing. And notice this, there was only 200 of them. There's only 200 of them. It is so important that we recognize and even validate who those people are in our community. And we listen and we discern and we test the prophetic word. And when we know it's of the Lord, that as one kingdom people, we move forward into that. Issachar had that on them. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Because there are other tribes, I just don't have time. The notes are online. If you want to see what I wrote about the other ones, that's fine. Um, but I, I don't want to end on war verses, so I'm going to end on the party verses. 
because it's felt a little intense this morning, right? It has for me. And we get down to the end of the passage and all the tribes have come. I want you to think about this with me. So David's been hunted and hounded for decades. All he's been doing is trying to love the Lord and serve the Lord with all of his heart. And he's just been, I mean, he's got assassins coming after him, maniacal kings coming after him, the devil coming after him, people running their mouths about him. And a lot of that stuff wouldn't end. You'll give me about two minutes. Um, the, the running days at this point for, for this season for him were over. He's been opposed everywhere he went. But on, in this season, he looks out and he sees 330,000 plus soldiers and they're coming to him not to kill him not to hunt him not to pin him not to destroy him not to defame him not to resist him not to oppose him but they come in submission unto him and they say we're going to fight for you you are our king and for the first time in several decades israel becomes unified under one king and it was the king that god had chosen it was king david and so what did they do they did what a lot of Bible Belt Christians are afraid to do. They had a really good time of celebration. They, they brought in the food trucks. It was, it was donkeys, and it was oxen, it was camels, but think food trucks. David said, open up the treasury. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pay for this. Actually, relatives of the tribes did it, but just let me do my story here. So, Don't inconvenience me with the facts, okay? So they threw a party. They ate a lot. It's in the text. They celebrated with wine. It was a day worthy of exhaling from the context of battle and fight and war and just celebrate the glory of the king. And so they, they did so. I, I want to tell you, I like to instruct, I like to preach. I love all of that. I love, I, I, really, I love what God is doing at, at IHOP New Bridge, New Bridge IHOP. I, I love it. I'm stunned by it. It shouldn't be working. It really shouldn't be working. The only reason it's working is because it was born from the heart of God and we're doing our best and our weakness as leaders to steward it as unto the Lord. And it's, listen, it's undefined. It's preparatory in many ways, but as we prepare for what's next, I don't want to miss the opportunities to celebrate what's now because he's so, so good to us. We have a king. And look around you, man, a lot of different tribes in the room. A lot of different tribes in the room. I want to tell you something. It's my joy to submit my tribal identity to my kingdom identity. And if I'll do that and you'll do that, it doesn't mean that we don't advocate for injustice and those kind of things we absolutely are involved in that well what it means is when when we look at each other I'm not the white brother I'm not the middle-aged brother I'm not the short round brother I'm not the brother who you know we got four pastors y'all probably have descriptions for us <laughs> whatever your description is that might describe me but it doesn't identify me amen so describe one another all you want, but let's love one another in our kingdom, brotherhood, and sisterhood. Why? Because we have a king to celebrate. Amen? Let's stand to our feet.